Welcome to part two of the Better Half mini-series presented by Scattered Curiosities, featuring our next four lectures about the First Ladies of the United States spanning 1865 to 1933, back to back to back to back. You will hear this sound, indicating the end of one lesson and the start of the next. Our last episode saw the nation tear itself apart over the issue of slavery, a gash that it is still struggling to heal. With Lincoln removed from office by the bullet of an actor's 41 Derringer pistol, trepidation set in for Vice President and Second Lady Johnson, who were supposed to attend Ford's theater that fateful night and were later found to be on the assassin's hit list. Eliza McArdle was a rarity in the realm of first ladies as she was an only child, to a cobbler, but was afforded a fine education at the Rhea Academy. She was quick to notice the slightly older Andrew Johnson when his family moved into the neighborhood in 1826. The pair fell hard and stood at an altar within a year of meeting eyes, making Eliza the youngest first lady to walk down the aisle at age 16. Interesting side note, the wedding's officiant was Mordecai Lincoln, a relative of Andrew's future work buddy, Abraham. Eliza was the whole package, books, brains, and looks. Andrew never even went to school, so Eliza taught him math, writing, and read to him through his humble days working as a tailor. These skills undoubtedly helped him climb the ladder to mayor of Greenville, Tennessee, U.S. congressman, governor, vice president, and then president. The Johnsons had five kids. One son, Charles, was a doctor for the Confederacy who came under scrutiny for encouraging local boys to rebel while another son, Robert, was a colonel for the Union and Dad's White House secretary. Robert would tragically commit suicide in the residuum of the administration. Eliza languished with tuberculosis, and the devastation brought on by the war caused her to shy from the spotlight. She spent most of the time in her private quarters, passing the first lady duties to their daughter, Martha Johnson Patterson wife to U.S. Senator David Patterson. However, Eliza did show face for Andrew's 59th birthday and to greet the Queen of Hawaii. Following an impeachment trial in the final White House year, the Johnsons returned to Tennessee sans the ten slaves they owned before emigrating to Washington who showed gratitude for their former master's, quote, untiring energy in the cause of freedom, end quote, by pooling together and having that statement engraved on a pocket watch as a tribute. Crazy, right? Andrew would ultimately go back to Capitol Hill for the final year of his life, and Eliza followed him soon after at age 65. 
The following presidential twosome was also on the menu for disaster in Ford's theater the night Lincoln was shot, but instead decided to visit family. Understandable, the war had only been over for five days and General Grant had been preoccupied with it. His wife slash first lady, Julia Boggs Dent, was born on a Missouri plantation and had a picturesque childhood, reared by parents who never dreamed they'd be forced to set their slaves free, yet did just that when compelled by law at the war's conclusion. Though Julia was an accomplished reader, pianist, and equestrian, she was clinically cross-eyed, refused corrective surgery as a young woman, and, as a result, only sat in profile for pictures. When promoted to first lady, she considered getting her eyes fixed. But Ulysses chivalrously protested, quote, Did I not see you and fall in love with you with these same eyes? I like them just as they are. And now, remember, you are not to interfere with them. They are mine. And let me tell you, Mrs. Grant, you had better not make any experiments, as I might not like you half as well with any other eyes. End quote. The couple was introduced by Julia's brother, who was also a cadet at West Point Academy. Ulysses was quite compassionate for a soldier and enamored with Julia. When her beloved pet canary died, he built the bird a casket coerced some of his buddies to perform a military-style funeral for it, and offered her his class ring. Julia was hesitant as he was to go off and fight in the Mexican War, but the distance made her heart grow fonder, and four long years later, they were finally betrothed, though Ulysses' dad boycotted the wedding because Julia's family had owned slaves. After the nuptials, Grant went back to the army for another four years, but would resign to be with his family on their St. Louis farm, Hardscrabble, and bought Julia a slave from her brother Fred. Surprisingly, when the Grants fell on hard times, Ulysses freed the slave instead of selling him to pay debts. Sick with malaria, the farm life was left behind and Ulysses worked for a real estate company before being given a job in the Illinois leather racket by Julia's father in 1860. It was there he helped form militias to fight in the Civil War. Not wanting to relive the bad old days of separation, he would bring Julia on expedition with him, leaving the kids at home with family. He simply performed better in her presence, a trait that Abraham Lincoln was quick to note when he made Grant commander of the Union Army. It wasn't just military campaigns she jumped on, but also political ones, and she delighted in the prospect of becoming the first couple. Julia was a very well-liked and proper host of extravagant galas with but two rules. Women must wear hats, and men must not wear firearms. This rule carried over to her regular Tuesday afternoon gatherings. 
and she was pretty chill, but would not stand for degradation to women, and got into a heated argument with Mormon leader Brigham Young regarding polygamy. Be that as it may, she did not advocate women's suffrage. Julia enjoyed her time as First Lady so much that she was crushed when learning Ulysses wouldn't stand for a third term. The 1876 election was a highly contested one, and her solution was to have Ulysses stay on while Congress sorted out the dispute between Samuel Tilden and Rutherford B. Hayes. While the name Grant is greatly associated with slave liberation in the United States, Julia had a conflicting attitude towards the institution. She grew up with slaves and had a personal attendant called Black Julia who traveled with her. Conversely, while in the White House, she advised African Americans on the staff to buy cheap land to establish security and welcomed anyone to her Tuesday receptions, providing they were appropriately dressed. After the White House, the Grants toured Europe and would come to New York City nearly broke after a string of poor investments. Suffering terminal throat cancer, possibly caused by the hundreds of free cigars he was given after the Northern victory, Grant hurried to finish his memoirs so their sale could provide for Julia and the children. After his death, Julia moved back to Washington, D.C. and completed her memoirs, which weren't published for another 90 years, 1975. She was present for the unveiling of Grant's tomb on the Upper West Side of Manhattan and was buried in his company when she died. Lucy Ware Webb was nurtured in a house of morals, but her father James's charity would be his undoing as he tended to the sick amid a breakout of cholera, to which he contracted and succumbed to. This came at a crucial time for the family, as James had just inherited about 20 slaves and was preparing to set them all free. But when he died, advisors to Lucy's mother Maria urged her to sell them instead. Maria took the high road, honored James's wishes, and took a job washing clothes. Following her parents' example, Lucy would become the first flotus to hire a professional black musician, Marie Salika Williams, to perform at the White House. Despite many first ladies having been given prime opportunities in education for their eras, Lucy was the first of the bunch to possess a college degree, from Cincinnati Wesleyan Female College, where she wrote essays like The Influence of Christianity on National Prosperity, Is Traveling on the Sabbath Consistent with Christian Principles, and she developed her opinions on women's suffrage by saying, quote, It is acknowledged by most persons that a woman's mind is as strong as a man's. Instead of being considered the slave of man, she is considered equal in all things and is superior in some. End quote. Lucy met her future husband Rutherford when she was only 14. 
His mother wanted the two to become familiar, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, but he was 23 at the time and totally recognized the inappropriateness to such a suggestion. But five years later, both happened to be in attendance at the same wedding party and the pairing was more congenial especially after he had won the find the gold ring in the cake game at the ceremony and gave it to her. Sweet. Following their wedding, Lucy literally exchanged the party favor ring for the real deal, which Rutherford wore until the day he died. He did not come from an upbringing that was sympathetic to the plights of the American Negro, but Lucy's principles were soon adopted by the young lawyer who took court cases of runaway slaves. When the Civil War broke out, Lucy implored Rutherford to join the fight, and she would come along to nurse wounded soldiers in company with her brother, who was a field doctor. Lucy took inventory of supplies to ensure the 23rd Ohio Volunteer Infantry had necessary provisions. The men called her Mother Lucy, one of whom was another future president, William McKinley. Following the war, Rutherford became a congressman, and Lucy was quite interested to sit in on debates in the Capitol, donning a patterned cloak so he could find her in the mezzanine, before becoming governor of Ohio for three terms. As First Lady of the Buckeye State, Lucy made the rounds visiting hospitals, juvenile centers, prisons, created an orphanage for children of servicemen, and fought to fund them all more suitably. Shortly after his third gubernatorial victory, the Republican Party nominated Rutherford for the top job of president. In a scene all too familiar today, The 1876 election was so contested that Hayes was not technically the winner until five months after the boxes closed. The process of disbanding Union soldiers from the South drew to an end as the Hayes administration took over. The White House was in much need of a makeover, but with no budget for it, Lucy dusted off some of the furniture that was in the attic and showcased the historical relics. As female reporters were becoming more commonplace, Lucy received a lot of press coverage. She would be the first to be called First Lady by the press, specifically Mary Clement Amps. According to the New York Herald, people adored her. Quote, Mrs. Hayes is a most attractive and lovable woman. She is the life and soul of every party. For the mother of so many children, she looks youthful. End quote. Lucy loved her furry friends and had a pet bird, goat, cat, and two dogs. Because of her voice in the temperance movement, she had liquor prohibited in the executive mansion and became known as Lemonade Lucy by her detractors. Teetotalism had become a hot-button issue with which many Republicans sided. In short, Hayes needed the dry vote. 
Lucy was so generous to the White House staff that she had them bring their families for Thanksgiving dinner and gift opening on Christmas morning. They even afforded workers time off to take classes. One thing the Hayes White House had that no other president enjoyed up until this point, running water, in addition to being the first first couple to use a phonograph, typewriter, and telephone while in office. Lucy turned the billiard room into a greenhouse and put the pool table in basement storage because billiards symbolized gambling and or vanity to prudent folks. The flowers grown in the greenhouse would flourish throughout the White House and be sent to local hospitals. Lucy loved music and hosted casual sings of gospel tunes while she played guitar. Accompanied by some other musically inclined friends, Secretary of the Interior Carl Schurz on piano, and Vice President William A. Wheeler and Secretary of the Treasury John Sherman on backup vocals. Lucy and Rutherford traveled so much that he was called Rutherford the Rover, while she single-handedly commanded junkets as a diplomat of the administration. She was the first floatist to have such a public agenda and go to the West Coast solo while holding the position. Lucy lobbied for the Washington Monument to be finished and stood up for the children who were shooed from the Capitol while rolling Easter eggs by inviting them to do it on the White House lawn instead, a tradition that lives on. Lucy was also in contact with former and future flotuses like Sarah Polk, Julia Tyler, Julia Grant, Lucretia Garfield, Ida McKinley, and Helen Taft. All of this in just one term, by choice. While she embraced astringency, she did not support prohibition in America. Lucy wanted to encourage people to avail sobriety of their own volition, not force them. She denied an open membership to the Women's Christian Temperance Union, even though they commissioned what would become her official portrait. Life after the White House found them back in Ohio, where Lucy helped former slaves get their lives on track, advocated women's suffrage, and criticized Mormon polygamy. Lucy Hayes died of a stroke at age 57. Rutherford followed three years later and was buried beside her, their dog Grime, and two horses, Old Ned and Old Whitey. Next time, we'll meet a history buff first lady who spoke Greek, Latin, German, and French, a few more sister first ladies, a surprising amount of first ladies who didn't support women's suffrage, and we'll discover how Johnny Cleveland and Frank Preston are one in the same. We left off with Rutherford the Rover and Lemonade Lucy as the vacating residents of the executive mansion. 
The still very new Republican Party had held the White House for 20 years as Americans' titans of industry, or robber barons like J.P. Morgan, J.D. Rockefeller, and Andrew Carnegie, were buying politicians left and right, rearing up for more gravy years with President Garfield. His wife, Lucretia Rudolph, or Crete, attended seminary, learning Latin, German, French, Greek, and excelling in the sciences. She went on to Hiram College and studied under the tutelage of Mr. James Garfield and emerged an educator in her own right. Settle down. First of all, they were the same age and did not hook up. But after graduating, they kept in touch, developed a fondness for one another, and got engaged. Lucretia and James pitched woo for nearly eight years before tying the knot. Torn apart for a few trips around the sun while he served in the Union Army, the couple reconvened after the bloodshed and James morphed into Congressman Garfield. Lucretia took to D.C. life and could easily consort with the intellects of Washington. Much as James undoubtedly cared for Crete, he was a known philanderer to which the self-preserving Lucretia responded by keeping her teaching job should she ever become divorced. It was just as well because she loathed hosting responsibilities. Still, Flotus number 20 faced the challenge with gusto, prodding James towards respective delegations to his cabinet namely the magnetic man, Secretary of State James Blaine. Crete was another smart cookie, cognizant of Republican aspirations, and helped James transcend within the group. She was a total history buff and determined to make the White House a living museum. With the Library of Congress at her disposal, Crete delved deep into the narrative of 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue and spoke of how eight decades of ghosts haunted the domicile. Postliminary to their arrival in the District of Columbia, Crete contracted malaria and went to New Jersey to heal. When James, too, climbed onto a Garden State-bound locomotive to visit her, he received two gunshots, one to the back, one to the arm, delivered by clinical psychopath Charles Guiteau. Lucretia rushed to be with James aboard a speeding train that nearly killed her by way of piston failure. The president held on for two months, dying less than a year into commission. One of the physicians caring for Garfield was Dr. Susan Edson, whose salary was half the amount of her male counterparts. Surprise, surprise. Lucretia was appalled at the revelation and saw that such discrimination was rectified. When James died, Lucretia was devastated, went back to Ohio, and established Garfield's legacy with what ripened into the first presidential library, including papers and personal effects of the late short-lived leader. A $350,000 trust fund saw that Lucretia was not left destitute through the next 35 years of her life. The former first lady never publicly came out in support of women's suffrage, but accounts from her children suggest Crete was for it. Mrs. Garfield kept active into her 80s, 
endorsing Teddy Roosevelt for president in the residuum of William McKinley's assassination and volunteering for the Red Cross during World War I, dying eight months shy of the Great War's conclusion on the 11th hour of the 11th day of the 11th month, Armistice Day in Europe and Veterans Day in the United States. Since the days of Martha Washington, we've had wives, daughters, in-laws, friends, and nieces stepping up to the function of First Lady, but Mary Arthur McElroy was the first sister to hold down the fort. Posterior to the fatal attack on President Garfield, her widower brother, VP Chester A., materialized as the 21st President of the United States overnight. His wife, Ellen, had rankled two years prior. Mary was the youngest child out of nine, and by 1881 had her own complete family. So, she agreed to do Chester's D.C. gig only during the busy season, winter. While never officially indoctrined with any formality, Mary commandeered the task with great enthusiasm and corresponded with former First Ladies Julia Tyler and Harriet Lane, even welcoming them to do the honors on occasion. Following the White House, Mary and her husband John Edward McElroy, president of the Albany Insurance Company, raised eyebrows by inviting Booker T. Washington to their private residence. And for as liberal as her feelings on race, it is bewildering that Mary was a member of the Albany Association opposed to women's suffrage. Trends often come in pairs, so it isn't jarring that we'd have two first sisters in a row. Whereas Mary McElroy was committed to a whole term, Rose Elizabeth Cleveland, or Libby, facilitated her brother Grover's first year in charge before handing the keys over to his shiny new wife. Rose was also the baby out of nine kids, and the sibling's father Richard died when she was only seven and expected to care for their ailing mother so nine years older than her brother Grover could go off to New York City to teach at the state school for the blind. Rose would also become an educator at age 16. The repose of their mother, Anne, saw that Rose was named overseer of the family property. Four years later, when bachelor brother waxed as head of state, Rose was welcomed to the fray with open arms and favorable write-ups of a provocative, low-cut, sleeveless black satin dress of hers. Yet Rose didn't really click with Washington and was more an academic than a socialite, but felt it her duty to assist Big Brother to the best of her abilities. Grover wed Francis Folsom a year into office and freed dear Rose from the post so she could go back to teaching and eventually mature into the editor of Literary Life magazine. As a Sunday school teacher, Rose said, quote, We cannot touch humanity at large except as we touch humanity in the individual. We make the world a better place through our concrete relationships, not through our vague general goodwill. We must each find a true partner, 
Someone who understands and appreciates us. Someone whose faith in us brings out our best efforts. Our deepest craving is for recognition, to be known by another human being for what we truly are, end quote. And in 1890, Rose found a true partner in Evangeline Mars Simpson. The women went on to exchange salacious letters detailing a lesbian tryst. So Rose was utterly heartbroken and blindsided when Evangeline suddenly married an Episcopal bishop. A decade passed, along with the bishop, and the star-crossed lovers found each other again, deciding to run away to Italy. Rose met her demise afflicted with the Spanish flu, leaving Evangeline to grieve for a dozen years until their side-by-side graves were filled. When now sister-in-law, Frances Clara Folsom, relieved Rose of her cachet, she became the youngest wife of a sitting president. Frances grew up an only child and was technically named Frank after her uncle, which softened to the feminine tense. Frances first met 27-year-old Grover Cleveland when she was born. He was a chum of her father, Oscar. Who knew the baby buggy Grover gifted the Folsoms would be occupied by his future wife? By the time she was 11, her mother Emma had moldered, and Oscar perished in a carriage accident. Leaving no will behind, the court thought it best to put Francis in the care of Oscar's most trusted compatriot, Grover Cleveland. A decade later, Grover proposed to Francis during a visit to Washington, D.C., just after getting her sheepskin. On the scent of their premiere as first couple, the Clevelands got right to having children. Grover died when the youngest was five, and Francis remarried five years antecedent to Grover's death. She and the kids were on holiday in Switzerland when the first shots of World War I rang out, and they promptly returned to the United States, where Francis ascended to the ranks of the National Security League, and by its completion, embraced the importance of the Committee on Patriotism via education. Within the consortium, Francis accused multitudes living within our borders of not being homogenized to Americanism and thusly stunting progression. Ironic that she would be the first lady at the dedication of the Statue of Liberty. The solution? Imbue a pro-war stance within the schoolroom. This radical perspective forced her resignation from the League. Staggeringly, Francis felt, quote, women weren't yet intelligent enough to vote, end quote, a statement that earned her vice presidency of the New Jersey Association opposed to women's suffrage. Notwithstanding, she was charitable to a destitute populace suffering the Great Depression by backing the Needlework Guild of America. Francis faded away in her sleep at age 83. Caroline Lavinia Scott was the daughter of a reputable professor of math and science, John Witherspoon Scott. 
In company with many of his Miami University colleagues, he was sacked by the institution's president for supporting slavery's abolition. This drove John to seek employment at Farmers College near Cincinnati. It was there one of his freshman students, Benjamin Harrison, got acquainted with Caroline. They dated for five years. In the interim of the romance, Caroline attended the Oxford Female Institute, owned by her dad. Mother Mary served as the doyen of home economics, and Caroline studied art, literature, theater, and music, specifically piano. She would take Benjamin out dancing, despite his father forbidding it, kind of like a backwards footloose situation. They prudently decided to wait for marriage until both had completed their degrees, he in law and she in music education. As Ben tried to get a foothold in litigation, the doublets spent little quality time together, but did find occasions to build a family. Amid the Civil War, Caroline got involved in the welfare of soldiers by joining the Ladies' Sanitary Committee and the Ladies' Patriotic Association. Ben was no slouch either and was able to gather a cadre of Indiana fighters to bring to the brawl. They begged him to be commander, but he said no because he was not qualified for the job. He instead accepted second lieutenant. Benjamin's contribution was to drill his men and educate them in military procedures. The result of these efforts saw Lieutenant Harrison boosted to a colonel and then brigadier general. Pursuant to the conflict, it was back to bureaucracy. Such eminence in the state of Indiana encouraged Ben to seek its governorship. Though unsuccessful in the campaign, the Republican Party noticed his aptness and helped pave a way to his senatorship in order to install a Harrison White House do-over. You'll recall his grandfather William held the cast for about a month in 1841 before croaking of pneumonia. This time around, generations of the Harrison brood inhabited the home of the commander-in-chief, their daughter Mary, her two kids, in-laws, etc., and they all had the honor of seeing the very first Christmas tree in the White House, thanks to Caroline. Her love of bygone days was put to good use through conscientious facelifting decisions made with her $35,000 renovation stipend from Congress. Pest control was number one on the to-do list. It was infested with bugs and mice. In addition... Caroline had extra bathrooms and modern plumbing put in, new floors installed, and most exciting of all, electricity. Howbeit she wouldn't touch the light switch for fear of being electrocuted. So illumination lingered all night long and darkened by a staffer who flicked it off in the morning. She was a champion for women's causes and worked towards allowing them to attend Johns Hopkins University. Caroline even matriculated into president herself of the National Society of the Daughters of the American Revolution. 
but soon after, she developed symptoms of tuberculosis that staved her from a social schedule before eventually succumbing to the malady. Daughter Mary McKee finished the remaining months of Benjamin's time in prestige. By the time her parents were heading the nation, Mary had a family of her own, and as I mentioned, they all lived in the White House during the administration so it wasn't a massive departure from the norm for them. Concurrently, Mary's husband, James Robert McKee, was doing business with the Thomas Houston Electric Company, the precursor to the conglomerate General Electric, of which McKee would be the vice president for nearly two decades. Mary and Father Benjamin had an awkward falling out when the former president married his dead wife Caroline's former secretary and niece, Mary Scott Dimmick, who was also 27 days younger than his daughter, Mary. She and brother Russell Harrison denounced the pairing, refused to go to the wedding, and permanently severed all communication. Mary died at age 72. When First Lady Frances Cleveland exited the White House doors in 1889, she clairvoyantly commented, quote, I want you to take good care of all the furniture and ornaments in the house and not let any of them get lost or broken, for I want everything just as it is now when we come back again four years from today, end quote. Insert the only non-consecutive serving presidential husband and wife in U.S. history. Next time, we will enter the 20th century with another assassination, a first lady repelled by shaking hands, I hear you, sister, and the first flotus to steer a horseless carriage, a.k.a. automaton, a.k.a. car. In our previous session, Frances Cleveland had returned to the White House for her non-consecutive jaunt as First Lady, a triumph yet to be repeated in the nation's history and a feat worth bragging about. Albeit one might argue, it would also be fun to be her successor because you'd be floatus for the turn of the century. Ida Saxton was descended from the founder of Ohio's first, and today only, newspaper, The Repository. She studied at a Pennsylvania seminary and was, by all accounts, extremely beautiful, poised, and prim. It was at a picnic that she met Bill McKinley, howbeit the timing was off as she was set to explore the many cultures of Europe. The two revisited upon her homecoming when she worked in the window at her dad's bank, unheard of at the time. After a few years, they got married, but her exuberance turned to sorrow with the death of two children and her mother. Ida gradually started having epileptic seizures and grew wholly reliant on Bill. The poor thing even had a fit during their gubernatorial inauguration ball. So, she tried to temper the condition with narcotics, shied from the public, and found comfort in knitting slippers. Lots of them, which she gifted to family, comrades, and those in need. 
Ida believed the passing of her mother and infant child within two weeks of one another was God's vengeance, and she frantically clung to the remaining three-year-old, Katie, showering her with adoration in a darkened room. The hapless child was convinced if she were to leave their yard that, quote, God would punish Mama some more, end quote. Omen or not, two years later, Katie contracted typhoid and succumbed to it in days. The McKinley's marriage was never quite the same afterward. Bill became William entering the White House and was extra attentive to Ida's needs in so much as to make sure that she always sat next to him at events and dinners. And if she had a seizure, William simply put a napkin over her face until it ceased. It was clear that Ida needed help performing flotus duties, many of which were taken up by second lady Jenny Hobart. Tragedy continued to follow Ida when her brother George was murdered in a torrid crime of passion dealt by a jaded ex-lover. Despite the epilepsy, Ida traveled cross-country with William and was in Buffalo, New York when Leon Shosgaltz shot him. She couldn't bear to go to the funeral, but visited William's grave every single day for her remaining five years. Edith Kermit Caro was Theodore Roosevelt's second wife. Her middle name honors a brother who died before she was born. She went by Edie and grew up right next door to her future husband in New York City. It seems the two had a teenage fling, but after he left for Harvard, their passions cooled. Teddy met and married Alice Lee and even invited Edith to the wedding. Having born T.R. a daughter, also named Alice, Alice Lee died in 1884. Teddy sought comfort with Edith and they converged soon after. Second wife syndrome loomed over Edith because Alice had died young and beautiful, which is how Theodore, who forever carried a torch for baby Lee's mother, remembered her. But Edith put on her big girl pantaloons and raised little Alice as if she were her own, along with five children they had together, Theodore, Kermit, Ethel, Archibald, and Quentin. While she had her hands full, Teddy was commissioning for the U.S. Civil Service and NYPD before he was appointed Assistant Secretary to the U.S. Navy, a position he quit to volunteer for the Spanish-American War. He was supposed to quarantine after returning from Cuba, but Edith broke that ordinance and rushed to be with him. Teddy was nominated to be New York governor the same year. As Flotus of the Empire State, Edith trademarked herself with bouquets, answered letters, cajoled with politicians' wives, and evaded the extended arms of strangers with a graceful bow of the head. The dawn of a new century promised to be fast-paced and proved it with Roosevelt's rapidly changing status. Governor for a year, vice president the next, and then president. It would have been utterly distasteful to throw any parties in the wake of McKinley's murder, so Edith focused on getting the White House in order and her children properly reared. 
She sacked the housekeeper, preferring to do it herself, and even found time to read to the kids every day. Edith saw that the living quarters, east wing of the White House, was divided from the executive side, west wing, and had her own office right next to the president's. She was the first first lady to have a professional round-the-clock social secretary to assist in event planning, including two debutante galas and one wedding. Edith and Theodore consorted for about an hour each morning where she'd offer counsel directly or via clipped articles of interest from newspapers dispatched to his desk. Her wisdom was considered as TR negotiated terms to settle the Russo-Japanese War, for which he was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize. They were the first presidential couple to travel outside of the U.S. while in office when they went to Panama. Edith hoped a post-presidential excursion through Europe could distract Teddy's fever dream of returning to power with his independent bull moose party. She was relieved when he was not re-elected. Edith was doubly solaced that a would-be assassin's 32 caliber bullet on the campaign trail in Milwaukee failed to kill the colonel. Pumped full of lead, T.R. finished his speech and then went to the hospital. In the face of losing a son to the unprecedented global conflict, the Roosevelts supported U.S. participation in World War I. Later in life, when T.R.'s fifth cousin Franklin Delano Roosevelt sought to dethrone the incumbent Herbert Hoover, Edith had to constantly remind the public that Franklin was not her son. Edith Roosevelt destroyed a majority of her correspondences before she died, but a precious few have survived her. Helen Louise Heron, or Nellie, was from a large family of 11 children. One sister was baptized Lucy Hayes Heron because their father was Rutherford B. Hayes' law partner before he was the president. Helen received an exemplary education and graduated from the University of Cincinnati with a teaching degree. At age 18, she met William Howard Taft at a bobsledding soiree, who kept it cool and gradually courted her over the next two years. With the knot tied, they took a three-month European honeymoon. Once back stateside, Helen nudged William towards politics, but he was truly passionate for the courtroom. Helen couldn't deny his litigious abilities as he advanced from state judge to federal circuit court judge to governor general of the Philippines. The whole family moved to Manila for three years, where Helen learned the language dressed in traditional garb. With Taft's broader knowledge of life outside of the United States, he was made Theodore Roosevelt's Secretary of War and traveled the world with Helen by his side. William succeeded T.R. in the White House and invited Helen to become the first First Lady to ride in the inauguration parade. She regularly hosted visitors, sat silently in cabinet meetings, and advocated the arts by making live music at state dinners an ongoing tradition.
A stroke overcame Mrs. Taft shortly into the term, which affected the right side of her body and hindered her speech. Her sisters came and lent a hand through her recovery. Helen visited both the Republican and Democratic National Conventions in 1912, hoping that her presence might thwart Woodrow Wilson from slandering her husband. But the writing was on the wall, and after losing a fight for a second term, the Tafts returned to Cincinnati, where William taught law and Helen volunteered at the Red Cross. But before long, Washington beckoned William to the Supreme Court bench. Helen was wet in the Prohibition era, and people remember the party she threw to have been flowing. As Chief Justice, Taft was anti-Prohibition, though he acknowledged the movement's good intentions in his final years. Helen survived William by 13 years, doing work with the Girl Scouts and Colonial Dames of America. She was interred to Arlington National Cemetery in 1943. Ellen Louise Axon was born to a slave-owning churchman in Savannah, Georgia. As a girl, she won a bronze medal from the Paris International Exposition for her submitted drawing called School Scene. A lifelong lover of music and books, Ellen attended the Art Student League of New York. In her 20s, a grad student named Woodrow Wilson was in-state visiting family and was instantly entranced upon meeting her. What splendid laughing eyes, he remarked of Ellen. The two got engaged less than six months later, but waited to marry until he finished school at Johns Hopkins. Ellen's father suffered from severe depression, and the wickedness caused Reverend Axon to commit suicide while institutionalized. Therefore, the couple was married by Woodrow's father, also a reverend, alongside Ellen's grandfather, who himself was a man of the cloth. Not long after, the now Dr. Woodrow Wilson had nestled into a professorship at Bryn Mawr College and fathership at home. Ellen was a Southern lady to the core and wished all three of her kids to be born in Georgia. Sadly, the youngest, Eleanor, was a nutmegger, born in Connecticut. Ouch. As Woodrow hopped from Wesleyan to Princeton University, Ellen put her artistic ambitions on hold and adapted to raising kids wherever his career brought them. This was remedied when Woodrow won the White House, where she was free to set up a studio on the third floor. Almost everything she painted as First Lady was donated to charities. Breaking with traditions, the Wilsons did not throw an inaugural ball, and most of Ellen's party planning was quaint and felicitous. And while she wore her southern heart on her sleeve, Ellen addressed the plights of D.C. slums populated by impoverished African Americans and urged Congress to allocate better living conditions. She was only First Lady for two years when Bright's disease took her over. Until the president remarried, 
daughter Margaret filled the void. A successful singer who earlier in the year released My Laddie with Columbia Records. Margaret's life and administration altered dramatically in the 1950s when she went to India, adopted the name Nishta, and co-edited English-translated Hindu writings. Margaret's new stepmother, Edith Balling, was the daughter of a slave-owning Virginia farmer-turned-circuit-court judge of lineal ancestry to Pocahontas. Being a lawyer paid much less than what he made running the plantation post-liminary to the Civil War, forcing the family to give up the estate. Edith had ten siblings and grew up in an environment that embraced the Confederate doctrine known as the Lost Cause. Edith didn't receive the same distinguished proselytism as many of her predecessors. She was homeschooled by her aged grandmother, whom she had to nurse between lessons in addition to her beloved 26 canaries. At age 15, Edith was finally sent to an all-girls school and just face-painted. She was unruly, unaware, untamed, unhappy with the room and board, and unwilling to finish even one semester there. Remarkably, a transfer to Powell's School for Girls was hearkened as the most joyful year of her life, until the institution abruptly closed forever at the end of her first year. Mr. Balling was done spending money on her tutelage, wishing to invest in his three boys instead. Free to travel, Edith went to stay with her sister in Washington, D.C., and got acquainted with a successful jeweler, Norman Galt. The lovebirds had a dozen years together before Norman suddenly died. Luckily, he had a will that left Edith funds to, quote, live again, and she chose to check out Europe. Upon returning, Edith was introduced to President Wilson, who fell fast and rushed to a proposal. Because it had been so close on the heels of Ellen Wilson's passing, Rumors spread of an extramarital affair that may have even been culpable for Ellen's death. They decided to wait the standard one-year mourning period before having a ceremony. As Flotus, Edith's World War I initiative was to lead by example in the way of conservation, fostering gasless Sundays, meatless Mondays, wheatless Wednesdays, employing actual sheep to trim the lawn of the White House, and in turn, auctioning off the White House wool with proceeds donated to the American Red Cross. Edith eased into her high-profile position and made sure she attended the signing of the Versailles Treaty to end the Great War. After helping design the League of Nations at the 1919 Paris Peace Conference, Woodrow was preparing to adduce it to Congress when he suffered a massive stroke that confined him to a bed for the last 17 months of his presidency. Edith did damage control and assigned herself a stewardship of Woodrow's office and correspondence. Consequently, America never joined the League of Nations 
or affirm the Treaty of Versailles, setting them both on course to failure. Edith created and ran a bedroom office for the president. In her words, quote, I studied every paper sent from the different secretaries or senators and tried to digest and present in tabloid form the things that, despite my vigilance, had to go to the president. I myself never made a single decision regarding the disposition of public affairs. The only decision that was mine was what was important and what was not, and the very important decision of when to present matters to my husband. End quote. People communicated with the commander-in-chief in writing only. Those who resisted felt her ire. She gave Secretary of State Robert Lansing his walking papers after holding a secret cabinet meeting. Woodrow lived for another three years after the White House, and Edith died on the day she was supposed to be a guest at the unveiling of the Woodrow Wilson Bridge over the Potomac River. Next time, we'll encounter a skilled equestrian that practiced piano until her fingers bled, a first raccoon, and indulge in waffle mania. When we last convened, Edith Wilson was marionetting her husband Woodrow through the end of World War I and the final year and a half of his presidency, bringing us to FLOTUS number 29, Florence Mabel Kling, who grew up in Ohio as a well-read daughter to a lucrative banker who taught her the ins and outs of his trade. Extramural of her studies, she became a skilled equestrian, but Florence really wanted to be a concert pianist so badly her fingers bled literally from practicing seven hours a day. So, it was onward to the Cincinnati Conservatory. At age 19, Florence married a blue-collar warehouse laborer named Henry Atherton DeWolf. The couple had a son, Marshall, a decade later, but the pressures of responsibility drove Henry to drink and abandonment of his family when the child was but two years old. After he tried and failed to rob a train in 1885, Florence was granted a divorce from Henry and taught piano to pay the bills. The mother to one of her students, Charity Harding, saw in Florence a perfect match for her brother, Warren. They married five years later. Florence had a troubled relationship with her father. He was prone to beat her and disapproved of her betrothal to the Marion Star Prince Smith, who was five years her junior. Mr. Kling even falsely accused Warren of having black blood in his lineage, declaring that he would kill the newspaper men right at the courthouse. Her mother covertly went to the ceremony. Warren languished from depression and sought treatment at Michigan's Battle Creek Sanitarium, birthplace of Kellogg's Cornflakes, to alleviate the malady, leaving Florence to oversee their business. In which time, she vastly enhanced the operation's circulation, wholesale purchasing, and cultivation of newsboys, otherwise known as Mrs. Harding's boys. Papers flourished when the Spanish-American War ignited, and Florence knew the Marion Star could compete by pioneering a controversially novel idea, 
hiring the first female reporter in Ohio, Jane Dixon. Warren was not particularly fervent for women's liberation, but he had to hand it to Florence for her savvy vocational skills. According to her, quote, he does well when he listens to me and poorly when he does not, end quote. Like when she urged him to efficaciously run for Senate. Unsurprisingly, Florence sat in the balcony during sessions to ensure proper coverage and, to be on the safe side, sought the supplemental wisdom of an astrologer. Florence required surgery to address kidney issues, and the discomfort she endured healing in a hospital bed all day long developed her understanding of what terminal patients experience. As she recovered, Warren was traipsing about with one of her close friends, Carrie Phillips. Florence wouldn't learn of it for six years via an uncovered love letter. She contemplated divorce, but figured she had devoted far too much energy into his accomplishments to walk away. Florence persisted, as did Warren's philandering, and made sure to be by his side as much as possible. Though an ardent supporter of women's suffrage, Flo was careful to sideline the issue during the election season for fear of rattling too many cages. As the Hardings settled into Washington, D.C., Florence managed clerical papers and sought to further the rights of animals by joining the ASPCA and the Humane Society. She was especially susceptible to the mistreatment of horses in cities. Florence was nothing but patriotic during World War I, assisting women laborers with finding work, housing, and childcare. She brought food to service members waiting to go off to war, volunteered at Walter Reed Hospital, and organized a group of Senate wives to form a niche of the Red Cross that made clothes for the troops. Warren carried on with his affairs, including, but not exclusive to, Carrie Phillips, who some began to suspect was a spy for Germany. Turns out this was a false claim, but Miss Phillips often did speak in favor of the fatherland. While seeing soldiers off and wishing them well, Florence spotted Carrie at the train station and decided to confront her for all to see. Despite the embarrassing spectacle, Warren continued the tryst. Florence's kidney misfortunes continued with an attack that left her in bed for the better part of a year. To his credit, Warren did not leave her side until she was mobile and able to watch the Senate from the balcony again. When word arrived that Warren's name had been thrown into the mix of potential presidential candidates, Florence did not think his chances of winning to be very good and consulted her soothsayer, who ominously warned that Warren would procure the executive position but die in office. In contempt of the grim alert and to keep the Harding's dirty laundry bagged, Florence became a media sideshow buttering up journalists from the New York Times by her engrossment to waffle mania. Quote, you eat the first 14 waffles without syrup, but with lots of butter. Then you put syrup on the next nine, and the last half dozen you eat simply swimming in syrup. Eaten that way, waffles never hurt anybody. End quote. By the way, 
Florence Harding's waffle recipe is readily available online in the First Lady's cookbook. In a crushing victory, Warren and Florence moved to 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. She seemed more motivated than him to get the perfect cabinet together and shove the republic towards women's suffrage. Quote, Well, Warren Harding, I have got you the presidency. What are you going to do with it? End quote. First item on her agenda? Open the White House gates to the public. A huge score with the press. Florence was enthusiastic about giving guided tours of the home and once had Albert Einstein in the crowd. The papers called her, quote, far more generous receiving special groups at the White House than were her predecessors, end quote. Florence dressed conservatively for the 1920s, yet still had a look that was all her own, the flossy cling, a silky neckband of black. Sometimes referred to as the Duchess, she threw lavish events at the White House and was zealous about the home's history. Granted, she faced some backlash when it was revealed that she spent $50,000 on parties. But, by and large, Florence was a hit, evidenced by the David S. Ireland song written for her, Flow from Ohio. The first couple broke norms by going to movie premieres, hanging out with celebrities, and made headlines when Mrs. Harding nearly killed herself speeding into a telephone pole at 50 miles per hour in her car. With a life in the spotlight, Florence became the first floatist to be assigned a Secret Service agent. Be that as it may, she often reassigned her G-man to tail Warren to know of his whereabouts, revealing yet even more mistresses. Sustained betrayal affected her health, and she had another kidney incident that left her bedridden for some time. Still, she continued to have eyes on Warren, who never ceased his routine to drink, womanize, golf, and get involved in ruinous ventures, such as his approval of oil leases that culminated in the Teapot Dome scandal. Florence Harding notches in as the inaugural first lady to fly in a plane, own a radio, and use a movie camera. While on a cross-country train tour, Warren suffered a fatal heart attack in the Palace Hotel, but when Florence did not allow an autopsy, suspicions loomed that she had poisoned him. But we'd never find out because she died a year later. Grace Anna Goodhue was an only child, a rarity amongst first ladies, to a steamboat inspector personally selected by Grover Cleveland. She went to public school, gravitated towards music, and started taking piano lessons. Grace continued her inculcation at the University of Vermont, where she established a Pi Beta Phi sorority chapter, performed Shakespeare, harmonized with the Glee Club, and with her B.A. in education, taught deaf kids to read lips. Grace met attorney Calvin Coolidge two years later while concurrently going steady with another young man. But Calvin won the day due to a rather aggressive proposal. Quote, I am going to be married to you. End quote. Her mother never approved. 
Grace was not frenetic for political assiduity, as her husband's governmental assignments evolved from the general court to the lieutenant governor of Massachusetts, and by the time he was upgraded to governor of the Bay State and she first lady, Grace opted to stay home with the kids in Northampton. But within a year, he'd be vice president and relocate his entire clan to the Washington Willard Hotel. Grace did not get mixed in the games of statecraft, preferring to focus her attention on a more charitable syndicate, the Red Cross, and empowering female innovation through the endorsement and participation in the first Women's World Fair. She wanted the vibe at their White House to be courtly, unassuming, and comfortable. The biggest soiree they had was the celebration of Charles Lindbergh having completed his flight across the Atlantic. Consequently, both Lindbergh and the Coolidges were rocked by unexpected and sensational losses of same-name sons in their lives. Tragedy struck the White House first when 16-year-old Calvin Coolidge Jr. died from blood poisoning triggered by a blister that formed while playing tennis with his older brother John, sockless, and sepsis ravaged his body within a week. And Grace acted as her namesake and returned to her duties just months later. Of all the first ladies, I think that I like her portrait best with a fabulous yet elegant sleeveless red dress on, with her majestic white dog Rob Roy by her side, and backdropped with the far-off White House. Magnificent. Strangely not pictured, her pet raccoon Rebecca. Calvin Coolidge Sr. died of a heart attack four years after leaving office, and Grace carried on teaching the deaf and publishing articles in magazines. Though she had been at a crossroads regarding hyphenated Americans during the World War I era, Grace was passionate about lending a lifeline to European Jews fleeing encroachment of Axis forces in World War II, especially children. Grace Coolidge died of heart disease at age 78. Lou Henry grew up as a tomboy in Waterloo, Iowa, and her father nurtured her nature by taking her camping, teaching her to hunt, ride horses, and exposing her to geology and taxidermy. Lou was brilliant, quickly picking up Spanish, Italian, German, French, Mandarin, and Latin. She went to UCLA, at the time the San Jose Normal School, and wasn't just a nerd, but an athlete too. She was on the basketball committee, in the archery club, and served as the vice president of the Women's Athletic Association. Lou extended her pedagogy at Stanford, where she met the outgoing senior Herbert Hoover. He received his sheepskin first and decided to kick off his career in engineering overseas before they got married. The moment Lou graduated as the only female geology major there, Herb sent a proposal by telegram. They honeymooned in Shanghai and lived in Tianjin for a year during the supremely dangerous Boxer Rebellion. Her language skills paid off while there, earning her the Chinese name Hu Lu. In fact, 
The couple often used Mandarin when they wanted to have private conversation. To date, she is the only flotist in U.S. history to speak an Asian language. And together, the Hoovers translated a 16th century metallurgy encyclopedia into English. In 1919, Lou received royal honors after she and Herbert aided World War I refugees within the Commission for Relief in Belgium. A decade prior to their White House tenure, Lou was president of the Girl Scouts of America, while Calvin worked in both the Harding and Coolidge administrations. She held the position a second time years later. The Roaring Twenties was named so because it was a transformative era for the nation. Women could vote, and America was booming with wealth from the war. Howbeit nobody could legally pop the champagne to celebrate because of prohibition. Which is too bad because everyone needed a drink when the stock market crashed in 1929, six months after Herbert Hoover took office. It plagued his presidency. Shanty towns were called Hoovervilles, discarded newspapers, Hoover blankets, and the put down of World War I bonus army protesters by General Douglas MacArthur himself saw that Mr. Hoover's one term was a lemon. In the meantime, Mrs. Hoover strived to make lemonade and started a trend her successor carried forward making routine radio newscasts. It wasn't a daily show, but she was out there pushing the idea of volunteerism and revived Abigail Adams' 1801 tradition of opening the White House to the public on New Year's Day. Now, being president is undoubtedly stressful, even in the best of times, and Lou recognized the value of having a presidential retreat in Virginia. Hence, she organized Rapidan Camp's construction, prototype for today's Camp David. Much of the American population believed Herbert completely floundered his response to the Great Depression, voiced that conviction at the ballot box, and chucked rotten tomatoes at his re-election motorcades. No joke. But Herbert continued to believe that he could maybe pull a Grover Cleveland and catch a non-consecutive presidential term, but because of his unpopularity, the Republican Party begged him not to run in 1944. It was a challenging year for the old codger, who entered their bedroom one evening to kiss Lou goodnight, only to find her dead of a heart attack. Herb remained a widower until he died 20 years later. Our next installment of Better Half will be a bit of a departure from our usual format because it covers the life of the longest-serving First Lady that the United States ever had, or will have, thanks to the 22nd Amendment. Get ready for Amelia and Eleanor's Excellent Adventure. <laughs> 